Hello and welcome to ISE Season 3, Enablement History, broadcasting from OSC, the OrchestrateSales.com property. Welcome to the Inside Sales Enablement Podcast. Where has the profession been? Where is it now? And where is it heading? What does it mean to you, your company, other functions, the market? Find out here. The Inside Sales Enablement Podcast starts now. On today's show, our time machine is going way back, well before what is now the seven-year anniversary of the founding of the Sales Enablement Society, to the even earlier days before those two words, sales and enablement, together were even really a thing. They were just in their beginnings. And the guest to take us back, sales enablement pioneer Craig Nelson who takes us all the way back to 1997 when Craig was a director of sales engineering enablement, using the word back then, and operations for NetIQ all the way up through 2003, where he led sales engineering, sales ops, and global training organizations and was responsible for enabling all customer-facing roles. He's been doing it since the beginning. Then in 2003, he began his own company as CEO and co-founder of iCentera, which, as you may have already heard mentioned by Sales Enablement Society founder Scott Santucci in the first episode of season three, is a company that provided a sales enablement SaaS solution that scaled to over 150 customers and to profitability. And in 2011, iCentera was acquired by Calidus Cloud. I never know how to, how do you, how do you say that? Well done, Calidus Cloud. Woo, got I got lucky. And ultimately, SAP, we've all heard of that one, and I can say three letters. <laughs> Since then, You're on a Craig, roll, Eric. Yeah, hey, I'm on a roll, man. Uh, Since then, Craig has both led global enablement training and operations for SAP themselves as global VP, probably through that acquisition, and started up even a few more companies of which I will hand the mic to Craig in a minute to let him speak. But in the process, Craig played a role in pioneering the sales enablement market, creating two U.S. patents for providing intelligence centers for marketing and sales, just to name a few. Why not? So, Craig, enough out of me. Let's jump into the first question, and you can fill in the blanks on anything I may have missed as we travel to the past, then present, and then the future through your sales enablement lens. So let's start with that. When did you first hear the words sales and enablement and what do they mean to you? So Eric, uh, thanks for having me, first of all. And thanks for teeing it up. That's kind of fun to hear the memory lane. Interrupt me at any point. Whenever we come across something where you're thinking to yourself, you know what, we actually learned something from that. That's why you go back in time, right? And not repeat mistakes. If there's something I say that sounds like a real learning point, and, and kind of a juncture in, in enablement, uh, let's stop and go down that road. Because to, to answer your first question, we were using the term uh, sales enablement in, in the late 90s. Uh, and, and the company was a company called Mission Critical, merged with NetIQ, and, and we were going for it. We felt that we'd be able to scale that company from 50 to 500 reps. That was after going from five to 50 reps. So we kind of went through the been there and done that of the growth of the sales organization direct 
We went from no channel partners to thousands of channel partners. We looked at sales enablement as the, the secret sauce. I'm doing that in air quotes here. And, and when somebody would ask, how are we going to do this? We're going to hire another 25 reps. How are we going to ensure their success? Well, that's today's sales onboard. How are we going to ramp another thousand partners and not have a, a contribution rate of 10%, but maybe 50% that weren't just taking the paper, but actually doing the selling. So we, we felt confident, myself and a couple of other founders of the company called iSentera, which little known fact, Eric iSentera stood for Intelligence Center for a New Era of Marketing and Sales. Oh, I love it. So there, there's actually some meaning but behind that. The idea of that was we felt confident that this was for real. We registered the domain salesenavent.com in 98. Uh, I still remember sitting in the coffee shop. Uh, Eric, the question was, do I reserve it for a year or three? You, you didn't want to uh, outspend, right? What you were willing to invest time-wise. But I went for three and, and you know, happy that I did because over the coming years, each of the companies that we worked with didn't see us as a word or a definition. They, they saw us as a discipline. Mm. And for those that I've had a chance to, to work with over the years, you mentioned Scott Santucci. I remember connecting with him and Brian. Lambert out in Northern Virginia at their offices there. And and it went from a, a two-hour meeting to the balance of the morning and lunch because we had that same passion. That was, I would say, 2007, 2008. So this is before the SES. And I remember even way back then wondering, was Dreamforce going to do it for us or maybe we should have our own home, right? And then Scott was that passionate person that was out promoting Enablement. So you registered salesenablement.com in 1998. Like, was were other people saying that, or was that in the Icentera circles? Was that Salesforce related? What, what solidified that enough to hit go on yeah. GoDaddy? I think the term just kind of made sense. I, I remember okay. getting a lot of grief from people that said, "You realize that's not a word." And, uh, and, and so, you know, I said, well, somewhere in, in Great Britain, it is, I'm, I'm, I'm certain of it. Love so it. one of our co-founders was from London. And so the, the more important part, if we get past the, the term sales enablement, yeah, we went out and test marketed the idea, Eric. And I found a company called Ventasso. If you really want to go back in time, Tim Reister. Yeah, Ariel I was going to say that's Reister. I remember going to a show in San Francisco and they had a booth presenting this Ventasso technology. And what it did, I can still remember it because it really made an impression on me with that it assembled content on the fly specific to uh, a particular proposal or whatever was needed by the sales rep. I looked at that and I said, it's about time, right? There's something that, you know, CRM was there, right? Siebel and Pivotal and all these old technologies before Salesforce.com. So the question was, what do salespeople actually need to be better? I saw them. I saw the Sabo group. Not, not necessarily talking about the term enablement or the right. technology. And they weren't using the term sales enablement, but it was doing Got sales it. enablement capabilities. And, and that was the more important part at, at the time. Talking about CRM isn't enough for sales success. More was needed. Once you go out to the market, I get a sense that other people are thinking about it. Late 90s, that gave us the energy and sort of the passion to, to launch our own companies. And you know, firsthand, launching companes, it's a bit of a risk. Yeah, I've heard of that risk. That's was, such a helpful snapshot in time because I hear Sabo discussed in those early days, late 90s, 
um, yeah. and, and Ventasso for sure. And it's just interesting to step back in that time space with you when Craig Nelson registered salesenablement.com, a great piece of enablement history. You were influenced by the Siebel's Pivotals. Right? It's fun to say those out loud now, oh, yeah. whatever, 20 plus years later. And Sabo and Ventasso. So those were the core you were inspired by to go down the Icentera with your partners. Yeah. And, and the question was, what was missing? And, and I think we had learned the old fashioned way that uh, sales onboarding, which is pretty common today in terms of use cases, wasn't as common back then. But we felt early on that it was less of an art, more of an art and a science selling was. So there was things that we could repeat. We felt from the very beginning that the, the one week sales onboarding, remember those in-person sales onboarding oh. out at corporate? We, we, with, with, we learned very early on. Binder, of course, that lot of dead yeah. trees. Yeah. And we always wondered how far those binders made it from corporate right. right to home. We felt about half of them made it to the airport. So we felt early on that there was more to it. Things like continuous learning. And then you launch a product and you're back to the drawing board for the first decade. You know, one of the big conversations is what's the term? What's the definition? But I think more importantly, how does it work with CRM and other technology that was sitting on the desktop of the rep? That's a great snapshot. And, and you'd broken down with me beforehand that you'd put the early days of sales enablement in a couple of buckets. I believe you called generation one kind of from 2003 to 13, which is where we've been hanging out for a minute centralized sales content as you move from 2013 to present generation two was content packaged with training and it became more of a sales thing can you talk a little bit about why you chose those headlines and how that plays into what you just shared yeah the early days we 2003 launching ice and terra 2005 six we about 30 clients mm -hmm. these were small companies that in a sense couldn't afford an intranet I'm really going to date myself here. Couldn't afford some kind of discussion forum. So we were bringing that to small business, not unlike what salesforce.com was doing. And when we came across them, we felt well, there's, there's a great go-to-market partner. We also found another company at the time, Eloqua. And then we felt that if you were to combine up, we, we felt it was a dream team, CRM, demand generation, sales enablement. Those three combined would be something special to an mm -hmm. SMB, which is trying to make a name for themselves. That's where we focused. But for the first five years, when we looked at our deployments, so many of them were a content store for sales pitch decks, for maybe brochures, mm -hmm. a couple of customer-facing things. And a single source of truth was a positive term, and we felt pretty good about it. Single source, go there, you get the latest. But the first decade, it was really hard to, to see these clients just take advantage of it as a central place to store. So that's why I call it you know, a, a central content store thing. It wasn't a educational thing, training thing at that point or coaching thing, but it needed to be. And, and that's where I see in about 2011, 12, 13, some of the players we know today that are in market with enablement solutions, they began to embrace this idea that when you deliver the content, deliver a bit of training, deliver a bit of coaching, you know, deliver something so that frontline person can do better and the first pass can improve over time. I see the segue from it being a content thing to a sales thing over that first 20-year period. I love that you brought in Eloqua. Jill Rowley has come up on pretty much every single one of these. And in fact, she's one of our guests in season three. 
You had also mentioned a, a combination of a connection with her and the current CEO. Can you share that with the audience? Yeah, many years ago, when I was talking to the CEO of Eloquent, he said, look, let's do a partnership. Let's use one another's technologies and really begin to differentiate from the major CRM players. If you remember back then, Siebel was actually the, the main CRM player. Salesforce was wanting to you know, beat them at their own game. And they were working with companies like us. So yeah, we went to market together. We, mm. we formed alliances. There wasn't the SES at the time. Uh, Tim Reister might smile about this. Uh, American Marketing Association. It was his firm and Eloqua and my firm at the time that, that said to the AMA, you know, let us go to your, your client base and, and let the marketeers know that we're going to take your content. We're going to bring it to the front line. We're then going to get discussions going, ratings going. We're going to look at not just the sales pickup, but the customer pickup on your content. We're going to tell you what white papers are needed and which mm -hmm. ones should be disposed. I'd say this is a, a big pitch for the SES. If it wasn't for this network, the enablement industry could have went south at any point. It could have been gobbled up by, by one of these major players and, and been less a discipline, more of a technology. But it really was a combination of us going to market together. Our clients were asking, you know, why wouldn't you come together and deliver a SaaS solution combined? So that's what SaaS did for us. We were able to combine our solutions. We got together at Dreamforce's partners. I remember talking with people like Jill. She was very social and online and being able to learn what she was learning from clients. Because in the end, that's what we're all trying to figure out. What's next? I love how you brought that all together. It is a strong story of how much of a role vendors had in evolving sales enablement. And Jill, as the, the social selling queen, helped you all get the word out in many ways. You just combined so many incredible stories into one in a way I've never heard it. So sure. question two, how, when, and where does the then sales enablement society and now, as of a couple months ago, Revenue Enablement Society, and we'll talk about that in a little bit, fit into your timeline and professional journey. Yeah, I'll pick up on, on the point about working with uh, Brian uh, and mm -hmm. Scott Santucci because they, they gave us vendors at the time real energy to say this thing is for real. When I heard from Scott uh, a number of years later that there was going to be a get-together right down in Florida, enablement professionals. Most of us made it down there on our own dime. We we went down just to see what was going on and, and where it was headed. I think it was an important meeting because you know, some of the people we had worked with over the years did a lot, made the disciplines. I'm, I'm taking sort of a, a walk down memory lane from a technology standpoint, Eric, Right. You know, talking about the tech vendors, but there was all of these other content players, system integrators. We worked on, on deals with some of the largest, Accenture and some of the others with these deployments. Mm. They were full-on enablement deployments, but for many, they weren't full-on enablement deployments and they were used as a content store, right? It's a central place for, you know, your marketing material. Well, that's just not enough. And, and we felt that Sales Enablement Society was going to bring it to the next level. And you think about all these roles showing up in companies. One of our worries early on was we were going to be pigeonholed as sales trainers as opposed to something strategic. So yes. to, to me, the SES over the years has really done a great job of saying, this is not a sales thing. It's not a marketing thing. It's a company thing. Some of our early clients, I'll give a shout out to Thomson Reuters. I remember the first division using us over there it was a small division, tax and accounting, and they just took off. And then another division, and then another division. But with each one of those divisions, 
they they positioned it not as a central place for marketing content. They positioned it as that next thing to launch a new product, to launch new sellers, partnerships. Mm-hmm. I think SES did a, did a great job of promoting the role, the discipline, pretty much each quarter. We have a local user group here in Twin Cities. I'm in uh, Minneapolis. So the Shout Twin Cities Lori, uh, chapter. She did a great pitch at her last meeting. You know, Jessica Reichert and Giselle, I mean, they... They've really taken the Twin City chapter to the next level. It's going strong. Love it. It's nice to have these local chapters, Eric, because then you can yeah. have a beer and talk about things in less serious mode. That, that's where it happens, right? And and what a great crew you just named in the Twin Cities. You know, it might be cold up there, but you're keeping warm with those beers and enabling folks. Yeah, each one of those companies, Eric, they're the passionate companies. They believe in this mm-hmm. discipline. They have a group that's responsible for enablement. Many of the people that go to these local chapters they're it, right? They don't have a group. Yeah. They're the enablement person. And then they're the ones that I think benefit greatly by seeing these teams. Mm. Really interested when you talked about going to Palm Beach in November, 2016, you said we, and you've been telling a great story about all these interwoven going back to the late 1990s. Who was the we that you headed to Palm Beach with? I don't know that everybody made it to Palm Beach on that particular meeting, but if you look back, Tamara Shane, throughout this entire journey, uh, she's been one of those that you're thinking to yourself, I wonder about customer enablement, if that's going to be the next thing. Who do I think of? I think about calling Tamara. And and she's got such a great balanced understanding of the discipline and and the people and the human element. She was one of the individuals that we worked over the years with. How about Joe Galvin from Serious Decisions? Yeah. When you said walk down memory lane, if you go back to the early days of the demand gen waterfall, then you had Joe over here at Serious Decisions talking sales enablement. A lot of people that were here go to to test an idea because the the enablement discipline, one could argue 20 years, why aren't we further along? You know, that's an important question a lot of people have asked over the years. If you look all the way back to 2007, eight, that was a breakout year for us, Eric, not because of the siloed in the companies. These companies suddenly need to get better at selling. We need more compelling events in history, I think, to drive enablement. When you go to that next level, enablement becomes a company thing. That was the discussion at that meeting that was down there in Florida. How are we going to make sure the discipline is for real yep. and that the role respected so that we had a seat, you know, seat at the table, not just the sales QBRs, but the company QBRs and, and the partner, mm-hmm. you know, QBRs. We had to be in those meetings because we didn't want to be some afterthought. We wanted to be at the front end of the strategic thinking. And then from that, put in place the discipline of enablement. You just nailed it. And you've used the word so many times throughout this, but strategic, a strategic function, not just doing, 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 fixing, 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 fixing sales, putting out the next fire, right? And so exactly that point, question three is, your relationship with the founding positions. My cards are on the table. I'm a big fan of the three that you and your 99-ish fellow four founders of the Sales Enablement Society put together as a cross-functional group of all different walks and industries and areas of focus. I'll, I'll start with position one, that sales enablement is a strategic approach to eliminating friction across the commercial process 
subset to that, there are different flavors of enablement. There's a message enablement in marketing. There's talent enablement in onboarding, the sales operations side of things, and the delivery aspect of it and the entire customer life cycle, just to name a few, a discipline that has alignment with each of the corporate functions. And if you didn't strategically address the friction in each, the whole thing could fall apart. It wouldn't be orchestrated. Uh, what did that mean to you at the time? And where are we now? To, to sort of regroup your generation one, first 10 years of enablement, a lot of focus on centralizing marketing material and sales content. Mm-hmm. Generation two was a combination of that and training. That was good, but it wasn't great. When we think strategically and we think about one of the big inhibitors of uh, enablement success, it's been the silos within companies. When you look at some of the deployments and you see sales training handles the, the new rep here and then management handles them here, don't we all manage the success of reps? All these silos that were in place, I was really getting in the way of through enablement. If you really want to think strategic, think about uh, becoming part of the planning process for the next three to five years within your company so that when you're scaling sales, expanding into new markets, think enablement. How is enablement going to play a role? When, when your company makes a decision, and it's usually a conscious decision to grow, not just organic, but also through acquisitions, think sales enablement or now revenue name. When you think about launching new products, launching partnerships, you know, don't even think about doing partners without having partner enablement. Shift the mindset from enablement being an afterthought. Oh, no, we better get the training squared away for the new sales organization, that new product. No, it should be at the front end of planning. So the strategy the company has for the next three to five years, enablement should be in that conversation. So through the the lens of those corporate silos, do you feel like certain silos are being addressed better than others? Where's the opportunity? Early days, we had about 150 deployments in the end with our commercially available SaaS platform. And there was no doubt if you could align sales and marketing to get this discipline going in the company, Mm -hmm. that was your first opportunity. And historically, and maybe even still today, those two groups, you went to them and say, let's do sales playbooks. Well, we don't do sales playbooks. Flash forward now 20 years and and the group does do playbooks. Now the question is, are they used? I think today, as we think forward about revenue enablement, generation three, let's say, Mm -hmm. and, and we think about the broader, all customer facing roles, just like sales have been using CRM, customer success has been using some CX products, but it's still not enabling their success. So we should be thinking about that. So those silos are pretty firmly in place between sales and services. Um, They they don't necessarily don't like each other. They don't know each other. What's interesting about sales and marketing is they may not have liked each other, but at least they knew each other. They might not have believed in their positioning on certain things and what work needed to be done, but they knew each other. But sales and services don't always, especially if you're doing the work through channel partners. So how do we bridge that gap, right? In a service world, if you don't bridge that gap, the term we used many years ago, land and expand, right? You land that new opportunity. Still use it. Successful. (laughs) You you expand. If that handoff doesn't take place and it's not repeatable and you're not doing things like win-loss reporting and you're not doing things like taking a look at what are the first 30, 60, 90 days, Mm -hmm. something that, that was mentioned the other day, uh, from a client, why wouldn't every one of our clients be referenceable? And I, that should be the goal. I love that. So I think there's plenty of opportunity there. Every customer should be a reference 
And, and of course, I've got the sales hat always on air. Every customer should buy more. And Tom Pasello, you know, the ROI guy, when you go from pre to post and making sure that value isn't just pitched, value is realized. And, and that too is a discipline, not just a technology. So ultimately, I think the name of the game is how do you break those barriers down and have the company thinking it's a company thing, enablement, not a sales or a marketing thing. I love that. And from the beginning throughout this, you've used the word partners. And as I'm sure you're well aware, Jill Rowley's new focus, Nearbound, is surrounding the customer. And how do you do that? Partners who already have a relationship, right? And I think there's a newfound interest in enablement and that being a silo that goes from forgotten, much like CS, to in the spotlight. So position two, that sales enablement needs to be an effective, strategic, cross-functional business within a business in order to accomplish the mission of enablement. Any further thoughts on that? You already reinforced it a bit. I think the one thing we learned with our strongest deployments Companies that, that understood it wasn't just technology, that they had to have a process. And then there's always this great debate. I'm like, I don't care which sales process you pick, just pick one. If you have a process, then have a content and then have the people. When you had a, a champion within a company that understood that it was people, process, content, then technology, those were our strongest deployments. These were people that were uh, not afraid to ask in to that QBR meeting. And if they were perceived as being the sales trainer and they'd say, why would you be here? Because as you're selling, we're going to be helping you get better. I like that business within a business. If they felt it was a business, they would attend various meetings across the organization. Ultimately, it wasn't just the scorecard as the technology being adopted. It was a, what impact are they having? Are clients not just being landed, but also expanded? And are they being successful? We also had a couple of clients that over the years were as fast as they were building content, they were retiring content. It just kind of got it, right? More wasn't more. Mm, so right. you always looked for that person that wanted to build a business, but wanted to do it in a smart way. Mm. Uh, those were the best deployments. Those are the deployments that a decade later, they were still in play. Those are the deployments that stopped and thought like a business. Who are our key stakeholders? What do they want? And if I help this silo get what they want, will they understand if I bring them all together cross-functionally to nod their heads in the same room, I don't know, maybe a center of excellence, yeah. <laughs> yeah. right? So may maybe can you talk about those concepts? Yeah, I think with Isentera, right, Intelligence Center, we felt that if you could get more of the organization bought in to the discipline, there's been those companies we've come across where the executive team felt you were either in sales or enabling sales. It might be a little bit of a stretch for, for some businesses to, to think about, but I think now that we're in more of a customer-centric world, why wouldn't you work with sales and partners as part of your routine to understand the inflection points that, that are in the field where you're learning? A lot of companies talk customer-centric, but when's the last time you did a ride-along and, and listen to the client? And it wouldn't be a ride-along in person today. It's more in web conferences. It doesn't matter, by the way. It's, it's really understanding great discovery. Some disciplines are still for real, right? Question-based selling. You know, ask a lot of great questions and learn from clients. And then go to the next town and learn from a different client. I think more and more today, it's building that center of excellence. I'm back leading sales. And, and we're looking at one vertical at a time. But the first question might be, is that in that vertical that you're doing really, really well in, where you have clients, who's the best out there? Who are the people out there we can go to market with or go to customer that understand that market? 
because a, a generic question is good. A question to that specific vertical, be it healthcare, manufacturing, financial, you know, great set of questions, great content, great messaging, but you really have to go to the thought leaders in that respective place, right? That vertical, that market. One of the things that, that we've learned over the years that selling on the West Coast was different than the East Coast, which rest assured is different than it is in Minneapolis, St. Paul. Mm -hmm. so it's just different. And then you go abroad to Europe and it was different there too. In the end, it was more of a consultative conversation. And the hope being is that, and I do think that more and more people are talking about go-to-market partners and selling through them, learning about who they're connecting to because they've got the credibility and you most likely don't. So why wouldn't you reach out? It's an investment of time. And it's also a, a bit of a strategy call. Do you want to hire all these roles or do you want to work with partners mm -hmm. and go to market together? It's a different approach. So position three, by design, if you're promoting and elevating a function, it's elevating to something. So the aspirational state that was position number three was that sales enablement would evolve to be chief productivity officer. What are your thoughts on the evolution of enablement? Is it a role in the C-suite? I'm not concerned about the, the title of the role, uh, as I as I would be the passion of that individual who's leading enablement within their respective company, being able to reach the right people and be able to overcome some of the obstacles that that the company is putting in front of you. It's one thing to say you're going to be customer centric. It's something very different to do ride-alongs and then with this information we gather from the field, actually do something. It's good to have that executive title. I think most importantly, it's the better you understand the market you're selling into, you know, that's one of the things with enablement. Early on, we had some big ideas, but the clients weren't ready for it. Enablement, maturity, right? I love the term that Scott coined many years ago, random acts of enablement. Yes. And when he said that, I'm like, finally, somebody put a term on something that we tried to nail down for years. It's usually somebody that's somebody who's super passionate, that's able to step up in these meetings mm -hmm. and say, all right, before we recruit another hundred partners, how do we do with the last hundred? Right. Yeah, and, and I, I like what you said earlier, too, about the strategic function, and I'll add a little bit to that. An organization looking through the lens of cross-functional enablement, when there's an economic downturn, it's not the first function to go. And, and let, let's talk about today, you know, pre-2024. I'll, I'll go back to my my earlier positioning around what, what a, enablement is. If you're thinking about retaining clients, think enablement. The selling organization. A lot of companies have reduced that group as well. To, to me, that's a bit of a beginning of the end. You mm -hmm. know, that's that's your lifeblood of your company. Um, but right now, maybe enablement is going to be making sure your customer success organization, mm -hmm. make sure they're enabled. Make sure they understand, not on an annual basis when they come to the renewal, make sure they understand week by week, month by month, are, the, are these companies taking true advantage of our solution? And how many mm -hmm. deployments have you gone in to look at after a couple of years and uh, they're just not that far along. Why wait, right, for that annual review? I'm saying something that I think most companies have already figured out. If you can't keep these clients and expand them, it may not ever be profitable revenue. Mm -hmm. There's a real reason to retain because those same companies will be buying again. And you've got some credibility within that organization. Hopefully that CS professional is still there with that relationship. And, and you're proactively coming into them, giving them customer stories, giving them ideas and how they can do better. You're bringing ideas to them. And the, the, what I hear there is not only 
is the customer service and delivery team landing the desired business outcome that was promised by sales. Why and how was it promised by sales? The entire sales ecosystem was strategically set up to have a consistent value message that everyone from the BDR initially in identifying the opportunity and then the salesperson and bringing it home and landing in those couple desired business outcomes that resonate with that client. Then the customer service is landing those desired business outcomes. This is one Jaco over at Winning by Design. I went through his uh, revenue architecture course and what, what they landed on is impact, recurring impact. And I think that's the perfect way to put it, landing the desired business outcomes, seeing the impact, ensuring the client realizes the connection of what they've been bringing to the client and how it relates to that impact and continuing that relationship and looking for new opportunities to drive impact. And customer centric, what does that mean? If a company has a sales process, why wouldn't you have a buyer journey? It only makes sense. And then why wouldn't those two come together? Where are decisions formed on, is that vendor any good? Interesting enough, there's some surveys that say it's during the sales process. Did you make it easier for them to learn about you? Did you make it easy for them to buy from you? Are you thinking about sales execution where it's not three weeks till a proposal sent out? Are you personalizing it for that particular buyer? So let's say you nail the front end of the cycle, Eric, then you got to nail the back end of the cycle. And if you don't do the back end of the cycle, again, you, you might land and have the unprofitable deal in place. They don't even want to keep. Salesforce taught us a lot about that in the early days of, is it a winnable deal? Are they going to keep it? Are they going to expand? Now the question is, if you look at customer enablement and CX, it's the experience of the seller. It's the experience of the partner. It's the experience of the buyer that's increasingly going to matter, I think, in the next 10 years. Have you made it easy for them to, to buy from? And have you made it easier for your sellers to sell? They'll stick around. It's interesting, when we were interviewing sales reps five, 10 years ago, they were saying, do you have enablement? Are you thinking about our success? It's like, all right, we finally have arrived, right? They now know that why would they want to come in and draft all the materials they knew they needed. Well, it's already there. I think today, if we look forward, it's got to be a company thing. Going to summarize here. You got to look at that entire journey. You've got to cut out the friction. You really got to think about the experience of the seller, the partner, the buyer, not just the, the financials, because that experience, it will matter. It's what differentiates companies. Mm -hmm. there, there's a whole slew of new AI companies coming around the corner. Yep. That's what's fun about this industry. We know they're coming. But what they better do fairly quickly is find a use case and, and a business problem to solve. Yes. Uh, and, and then find a go-to-customer, go-to-market strategy that, that aligns. Because the best technology, as we've all figured out, doesn't always win. Especially if it's an empty shell, right? Without enablement attached. <laughs> We're believers. We're believers, Eric. Yeah. And, but yeah, they don't do the enablement part. You know, yeah. it's just a big idea. And what did you say the other day? The ideas are for free. Right. Just, uh, put them out there. The Dreaming's free, ideas are free, and you can turn them into impact if you do it right. As you know, the Sales Enablement Society at the time announced at the Global SES Experience in San Diego that they were evolving to become the Revenue Enablement Society. Curious, your reaction to that announcement, how does that land with you? Yeah, I'm glad uh, we're ending on this because there's many crossroads. And, and people have written about this over the years. I think right now, the fact that enablement as a profession isn't seen as a 
standard role within these companies and a standard discipline um, is an issue. And, and I think making this about revenue, not just a sales thing, is going to give us that seat at the table that we've longed for. I think it's going to put into perspective, hey, the enablement team should be part of the planning cycle for companies once your revenue. So short answer is absolutely. I think this is long overdue, Eric, my opinion, yeah. that it become revenue enablement. Uh, but for those companies that, that think of enablement as an all-customer role should be enabled, they, they've already been doing this. I think this opens up more conversations. It opens up uh, a journey now that we can uh, tackle. Uh, it's not going to be any one company, in my opinion, that's going to tackle it. It's going to be a collection of companies. It's kind of funny. We always wanted to be, you know, the single source of truth. There's only going to be one data store. I haven't seen it yet. You know, companies still have stuff up on YouTube and LinkedIn and you name it. Yeah. So certain ideas ultimately don't fly, but I think certain use cases, once across the organization, once pointed at enabling revenue and repeating success and revenue and, and profitability, uh, I think this discipline is going to be here beyond the next 10 years. Where we're testing the market today is, is going out to the field and asking that question. How big a deal is the customer enablement, customer experience? That, that's part of our sort of list of questions that we ask. And how can we make it not just a better environment for sellers and partners, but a better environment for the customer during the cycle of, of buying and deploying? I hear a resounding yes there. It makes sense because where you started was talking about enabling the entire customer-facing frontline. Let's shift from focusing on sales on the front lines to everyone who touches the customer, making sure we're including customer service, including partners, including sales overlay, if that hasn't been done to date, sales engineering. And that's what you've been naturally doing for more than a decade or two, right? <laughs> Which is beautiful. Yeah. So we've been in the past, we've landed in the present a good bit, everything that you've been talking about that we need to focus on the customer and the impact and an additional emphasis on customer success. That's the here and now in, in this current economy. What about the future? You shared generation three, which is 2024 and beyond. And I think the headline you shared with me was sales execution across the buyer journey, a sales and customer success thing. Whereas Gen 1 was marketing and getting everything consolidated, single source of truth. Gen 2, let's enable the sales force, get sales and marketing working together with that value message. And three being sales and customer success coming together in alignment with marketing. Where, where are we headed? That's a great summation and, and also kind of summarizing the years. Most of the ideas that I've talked about today, if not all of them, have been tested in the field at a, at a local chapter SES meeting uh, with a client. And, and what we're testing out in the market today is how do we enable the entire buyer journey? How do we leverage technology? The technology we have today, it's how do we use the analytics and all the behavioral understanding of the sellers, buyers, and customers during selling? You're not waiting to the end of the quarter to see, hey, what content made a difference? You're looking at your platform for enablement day to day to see who's selling what where, what products are working, what's not. You don't want to wait until after a quarter, after a year to say that new company we acquired isn't selling and here's why. You want to see during execution what's happening. So I think there's going to be a tremendous amount of analytics that now are bubbled up. You can use your AI engine to go through it. 
Most of us are using AI daily to sell because it can be leveraged to take a, a thousand leads down to a hundred that matter, to take a thousand lines of messaging and take it down to the 50 words that matter. So I think AI is going to play a role, but I think more important, it's you want to understand the sales people, the partner people and the customer every day. That's the execution part. And execution would fit underneath revenue enablement. And it doesn't stop when the sale is completed. It never ends. One last story for you here. We went to a CRM show in 2002. We purposely got a booth next to the Siebel booth. We spent three days at a CRM show trying to figure out how are we going to add value and then find a set of go-to-market partners. And we're there sitting at the booth and the Siebel people kept coming over saying, all right, who the heck are you guys? What is this enablement about? And because they were in sales, they got it. On behalf of the audience, thank you for your time, your insights, and for being not only a forefounder of the society, but the guy who got salesenablement.com. You can find me up on LinkedIn under Craig Nelson. I lead today a company by the name of Triptych, and then I lead marketing and sales. I love it. It's a discipline enablement that we see at the core of our work here. Eric, thanks for inviting me today. It's been fun to go down memory lane. So look him up and continue to be on the cutting edge of sales enablement history being made. Thanks so much for the time, Craig. Excited to keep in touch and have you back one day soon in the future. Yeah, look forward to it. Thanks, Eric. Thanks for joining us. To become an insider and amplify your journey, please make sure you've subscribed to our show. You can do so at orchestratesales.com forward slash podcast.